Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Amid protests of police brutality and racism in America, a teacher reflects on the systemic challenges in public education. As a Black teacher, I have not felt safe to advocate for my students in a way that I see my white counterparts celebrated in doing so. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Today, we talk to a teacher about dismantling racism in schools. And rising sea levels could split a Rhode Island town in three. Whenever we get like a good rainstorm, any hurricane or anything, yeah, the, the street just backs up with water right there into the building. But town leaders are not waiting. They want to redevelop on higher ground. Plus, a project that gets hair clippers to transgender people brings needed comfort during the pandemic. They can feel a little more comfortable in their bodies and maybe even continue to present closer to what feels good to them. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. For more than a week now, people have been protesting the death of George Floyd, police brutality, and racism in America. Across New England, in Burlington, Vermont, Hartford, Connecticut, Manchester, New Hampshire, Springfield, Massachusetts, Providence, Rhode Island, Portland, Maine, and many other cities and towns in the region, demonstrators have rallied outside police departments, on highways, and through downtowns. Here are some of their voices. For me, it's really important that I'm out here to show that I'm in unison with everybody else. We're tired of seeing black men and black women die by the hands of the people that are supposed to protect and serve us. I was held at gunpoint from your officers from time to say that I stole my own vehicle. I've had to watch way too many videos of people dying right in front of me. We don't have much to lose. We have to fight. This is not fair. There should be no reason why we are not policed the same way white people are policed. There's no way for them to understand it because they're not around it. They don't see it constantly. All they see is where they come from. They're used to police being good guys. They're friends. They help them. But they're not used to seeing police killing people for no reason, beating them, arresting them for no reason. I can't Let me read your Rest in peace, George Floyd. Rest in peace, Eric Garner. Rest in peace, Breonna Taylor. Those were the voices of Alicia McKenzie, Mylea Miller, Randy Wade, Melissa Sandoval, Kat, and Nashawn Teague, as captured by reporters in the New England News Collaborative. We'll have photos from these protests at our website. That's nextnewengland.org. Alicia Thomas is a special education teacher in Springfield, Massachusetts. She has a master's degree in comparative education with a focus in ethnic studies. And in the midst of these recent protests, she posted on Facebook about the role of teachers in dismantling racism. As a black teacher, she says she'd like to see school administrators support teachers of color more. Alicia joins me to talk about her views. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. 
So can you share what compelled you to post and what you wrote about? So I was compelled to post mostly because of the reactions and responses to the murder of George Floyd. And I've been seeing a lot of people step up in different ways um, and a lot of people taking time um, to process or to think about their role in this perpetuation of racism in our society and specifically our schools. As a teacher, I think about that constantly. That's part of my pedagogy. And I felt compelled to share that with the people I talked to. And, and what, what about your views on dismantling racism in the classroom and in school building specifically did you feel compelled to share? I think that Black teachers and white teachers are viewed differently um, and accepted differently in schools. And as a Black teacher, I have not felt safe to advocate for my students in a way that I see my white counterparts celebrated in doing so. And that makes me uncomfortable because it's unlikely that I'll see more Black teachers step up if this continues to be an unsafe space. Yeah, one of the things you wrote on in your Facebook post was, quote, I know a lot of teachers of color doing this work and being pushed out of schools for advocating. I know more white teachers who aren't doing this work and keeping their jobs. Now, you were an ethnic studies teacher at Holyoke High School in Western Massachusetts, uh, nearby to where you're teaching now. And can you talk about your experience there and what happened? As a teacher in the first three years of their professional practice in a district, your contract can be non-renewed for nearly any reason. And I think when I became a teacher, I didn't ever stop and say, I'm, I need to keep my job before I do what's right. I always thought of putting the students first, regardless of what that, of what that, that meant outcome-wise. In Hoyle, uh, there was a policy that ended up targeting students of color that wore do-rags. Do-rags are a head attire for men of color to create a certain hairstyle. And so a lot of our boys wanted this hairstyle. A lot of our boys were wearing these do-rags. And all of these boys were boys of color. Um, The rule, I think was intended to create a safe space for everyone, but it actually targeted groups of color, students of color. Um, And so when I brought that up to the principal and explained why I could not enact policy, he asked me to sign a a form saying that I was insubordinate because I wouldn't follow the policy. And I did not give him time to change it. That was very confusing. because for me, it was a matter of safety and survival for the students, right? Um, the students were being suspended, were being yelled at and made uncomfortable in the space that w- was intended for their learning. So what happened next? So I think that's when he decided to not renew my contract. So your contract was was not renewed and and to feel like your contract was not renewed because you wouldn't enforce this do-rag policy how has that impacted you moving forward? Well, I'm very clear um and careful 
about presenting myself um, to a school when I'm interviewing. I explained to them that my work in racial equity is tied to my pedagogy and tied to my life, like my livelihood and my existence. And so it's not something I can separate from. I explained up front that um, I will always put my students first, but I will always push them to excel academically. And I don't think that I'm sacrificing their academic needs when I support them, power them racially. Based on your experience, are public schools not doing a good enough job tackling the issue of racism? Absolutely not. And and what do you think schools, what can schools be doing more to enact change? So when we think of schools, so often we're thinking about teachers automatically. Um, we're not thinking of the school leaders, superintendents, and principals that are the decision makers in the school. And I want to see more superintendents hiring principals of color with critical consciousness. I want to see principals hiring assistant principals that will hold them accountable. But superintendents are not often thinking about the racial equity issue when they're hiring principals. Hmm. I guess it's just an open-ended question, but is there anything else that you want to share about your experience right now and what, what's been going through your mind as a teacher or otherwise? I'm very thankful um, to be in the, the current school I'm in, um, where I feel supported and by my principal to engage in conversations about race, not only with my colleagues, but also with my students. I feel empowered in this space and in this school, which is not something I felt in any of the schools I've worked in previously. Um, and if teachers were in spaces where they could grow professionally, they, we would see a huge difference in cultural proficient curriculum in how our students and teachers are building relationships. Alicia Thomas is a teacher in Springfield Public Schools. Alicia, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and your experience. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We reached out to the executive principal of Holyoke High School. That's the school that chose not to renew Alicia Thomas's contract in 2019. He said they could not discuss personnel matters. But regarding the policy prohibiting do-rags, he said, quote, At the end of my first year at Holyoke High School, after listening to students, faculty and staff, and community members, we reversed the policy and now allow students to wear do-rags, beanies, and baseball caps worn with the brim facing back, unquote. He also said the school is committed to increasing staff diversity and has done so for the past two years. As protesters across the nation and in our communities demand police reform, some residents are also sharing stories of racial profiling by police. Today, we hear from veteran Eugene Montero, a security consultant and use of force trainer. He and his family have lived overseas and in the Deep South during his years in the military. But when Montero settled back into his home state of Rhode Island, his then-teenage son had his first experience of racial profiling as a black person. Montero shares his son's story. My son, who was a teenager, was walking. I sent him to get milk or something. He got stopped, and the, the person said to him, 
empty your pockets on the car. Now he's carrying the milk. And my son, being a kid, he's like, he's like, why? He's like, because I got a description of someone that looks just like you selling drugs. He's like, was he carrying milk? <laughs> you know? And so when he came home, my son was upset. Tears in his eyes. Not the most emotional kid, but I tell you, in that moment, he got really emotional. Which really quit sent me back thinking about experiences when I grew up. And so I called down to the station. And when I called down to the station, I was, like, really, as a father, crazed at the fact that they had no record of my son just being stopped. But my son has told that story, now he's in his 20s, a thousand times. Each to this day, and he was a teenager then, tells it with emotion. Now, they didn't physically touch him or anything else, but the conversation belittled him. Sticks with me is the fact that I've gone throughout this country... I've gone overseas to defend this nation, came back to my home state and couldn't protect my own child. That's shameful to me. That was Eugene Montero from Rhode Island, sharing his son's experience of racial profiling with reporter Nadine Sabai of The Public's Radio. Contact tracing programs have sprung up around New England, with Rhode Island rolling out an app called Crush COVID RI that can track your whereabouts and who you come in contact with, if you allow it to. Dallas Paiva is a contact tracer in Massachusetts. She normally works for Blue Cross Blue Shield, fielding member questions. But she was temporarily redeployed to become part of Massachusetts's new army of more than 1,500 contact tracers. WGBH Radio's Gabriela Emanuel has this story about what the job is like. In the three weeks since starting as a contact tracer, Dallas Paiva, who is 24 and from New Bedford, has had two job titles. For the first week and a half, she was a follow-up associate. So all those people who tested positive or were exposed, she'd check in on them, often daily, throughout their quarantine period, making sure they're following the rules and don't need anything. Paiva was assigned one woman who'd received a positive coronavirus test. She was becoming extremely emotional. Paiva learned that just four days earlier, the woman's husband had died from the virus. Paiva called her day after day as she mourned and as she sat alone in quarantine, wondering what was in store for her. Regardless of the script and what information we need to collect, we also need to show these people that we're going to be there for them and support them through this. This woman ended up being asymptomatic. She was very appreciative that I continued to follow up with her until she ended her isolation period. Paiva says there was something rewarding about getting to help people during their hardest moments. But she says she felt she wasn't helping enough. She ended up waiting long periods without any follow-up calls to make. So she requested a new job. Now she's on the team that takes incoming calls, and she never knows what she's going to get. One of the toughest calls came from a woman who had just tested positive and lives in a household with nine other people. And a lot of those people were children that were in this household. And, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty and fear that they couldn't self-isolate in that house because of the amount of people living there and they needed housing assistance. She connected the woman with resources that could help. Paiva says even though she works Monday through Friday, she often worries over the weekend about the people she's spoken to. So every Friday, she checks through her notes to make sure everyone is taken care of or there's a supervisor following up. I think that makes it a lot more easier for me to deal with during the weekend. 
Despite the worrying, she says it's nice to be part of the solution to this pandemic. But the work is far from done. I think this is exactly the moment that is important for the contact tracing endeavor. That's John Welch of Partners in Health, the global healthcare nonprofit that's helping the state run the contact tracing initiative. As Massachusetts relaxes regulations and people begin to go out more. The science would suggest that the more social interactions people have, the more close contacts they have. So the task of tracking them all down might get harder. As much as Paiva finds her work as a contact tracer fulfilling, she says she's looking forward to the day when she can go back to being a member services representative for Blue Cross Blue Shield. She misses her daily routine, even her commute. I miss traveling an hour and a half to get to my job, and I miss taking two hours to get home, and I miss my colleagues at the office and waving hi to people walking by at the cubes and the different team meetings and team building activities that we had. She says what she really misses is the sense of normalcy that there was before the pandemic hit. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. After the break, with high school graduation just around the corner, students prepare to miss the usual festivities. And a Rhode Island town, threatened by sea level rise, is taking action. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. High school graduations are coming up. And as state education departments release guidelines for graduation ceremonies during the pandemic, high school seniors in Vermont are getting a clearer picture of how their schools will mark this once-in-a-lifetime achievement during a once-in-a-lifetime public health crisis. Vermont Public Radio's Howard Weiss-Tisman reports. The COVID-19 pandemic first interrupted Owen Hansen's senior year about a week before the cross-country ski team's end-of-season banquet. It was my senior year and really looking forward to it. Just kind of the final goodbye. We had states and everyone was really excited for it. And then we found out that we couldn't have it. And we're still kind of trying to figure out what to do. So that was kind of, that was a bummer. Along with the cross-country skiing, Hansen was supposed to be a captain on the lacrosse team this spring. But the season was canceled. And senior night when Mount Anthony athletes are recognized for their four years of achievement, was also canceled. And so when he heard that graduation this year would have to be scaled down, it all kind of crashed down on him. Once they really kind of announced that we're not doing the normal graduation, um, it upset me. Again, being able to share that experience with my friends and my family is pretty important to me, and just kind of everything hitting me. All in once was pretty difficult. Mount Anthony administrators are still finalizing the graduation plans, but at this point, they're hoping to do a drive-through ceremony with the 200 or so seniors lining up in cars in front of the school. 
The students will have to wear masks, and when they drive up to the table, they'll walk out of the car and receive their diploma in a plastic bag with no handshakes or hugs. Parents will have to take pictures from the car, and there will be no congregating or laughing or crying with friends when and if their caps are tossed in the air at the end. It's not exactly what Brianna Hudson imagined her high school graduation would look like. Some of us have been together since kindergarten, so we've been waiting for this graduation day, you know, our entire lives. So I'm glad that I get to walk across the stage and get my diploma. I'm mostly upset that I don't get to kind of enjoy the moment with my friends. When Governor Phil Scott first closed Vermont schools, the Agency of Education was not asked to come up with a game plan for graduation ceremonies. Education Secretary Dan French says there was plenty to deal with in addressing the immediate challenges in moving to remote learning. As it became apparent that traditional graduation would be off limits, French knew there would be some disappointed students and families. French is a former principal and superintendent, and he's given his share of commencement addresses. And he says all those classic graduation speech themes about rising above adversity, sacrificing for the public good, and looking backwards and ahead—they'll all have very special meaning this year. You can't help but think that there's important lessons that this group, in particular, since they've been directly impacted by the events, will take away as important life lessons. And I think this generation, and specifically this graduating class, is in a unique opportunity to really acknowledge that you know this is a historic moment for our larger society, but also certainly for the families and the lives of the graduates themselves. So all across Vermont, high schools are now coming up with plans that work for their students and their campus and their communities. Some ceremonies will be held entirely online. Schools are using fairgrounds to try to gather as many students in one place as possible while maintaining social distance. And at the tiny Danville School in the Northeast Kingdom, where there will be 22 high school grads this year, an almost traditional ceremony will be held. Though every grad will get his or her temperature taken before picking up a diploma. Here in Bennington. Banners are going up on Main Street to honor the class of 2020. Melissa Currier is a member of a parents committee that was supposed to be raising money and planning for a post-graduation party in Bennington. There's no party this year, so Currier says the group is organizing a parade for the day after graduation, raising some extra cash to give every grad a hundred-dollar check, and putting these banners up. This is just a way for the community to see that we truly、um, are celebrating our students and we care about them, and, and it does bother us that that they don't have an opportunity to go through all the normal senior activities like proms and spring sports and award ceremonies and their graduation. And it's just a statement to them to tell them that the community does care. Molly Cohen says it's been hard to have her last few months of high school just kind of slowly disappear, but she'll pick up her diploma while wearing a mask and maintaining social distance, and get ready for whatever lies beyond high school. There's definitely like a grieving process. There is, and you know, I've definitely had that. And there's times when you know I'm like, oh my god, I don't get my prom. This sucks. And then I kind of have to take a step back and. You know, think about the situation. I think about how lucky I am to be living here and to be 
safe and healthy and it really does kind of put everything into perspective where yeah you know like obviously not an ideal situation but I'll grieve my losses and get over it and know that there are bigger problems going on right now. The Mount Anthony Union High School graduation ceremony for the class of 2020 is scheduled for June 12th. That was Howard Weiss-Tisman for Vermont Public Radio. The Atlantic hurricane season has officially started, and predictions are there will be more hurricanes this year than normal. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, says a typical hurricane season runs June 1st to the end of November and has about six hurricanes. This year, NOAA is predicting as many as 10 hurricanes. Jennifer Francis is a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Research Center on Cape Cod, and she joins me to talk about the coming hurricane season. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to Next. Thank you, Morgan. Happy to be here. So let's start with this prediction of an above-normal season. Why might there be more hurricanes this year than usual? Well, there are many factors that are taken into account to create these predictions, but the the main two that are uh, sort of weighing all of the predictions that are coming out of groups that do this sort of thing are the fact that the area of the Atlantic Ocean where hurricanes typically form, especially in August and September, which extends from the coast of Africa across the Caribbean and into the Gulf of Mexico, that entire region um, has surface ocean temperatures that are well above normal. And that extra heat in the ocean is one of the main sources of energy for tropical storms, uh, both to form and to become stronger. The other big factor that goes into those predictions is whether or not there's an El Nino out in the Pacific. And so because we have no El Nino happening this year, there isn't one predicted, um, that factor won't be ripping any storms apart. Perhaps one of the most unique things about this year is that we're in the midst of a pandemic. And how will this make things more challenging if we do get this higher than average number of hurricanes that hit the coastline? Right. So it's just going to make it that much more difficult for evacuation to occur, for shelters to be set up, um, for provisions to be acquired if if people need to um, get emergency um, food and batteries and all that sort of thing. Already, those those emergency provisions are have been depleted, so it's just going to make the whole thing that much more difficult. And are you aware if state and federal governments are preparing for that sort of scenario right now? I know they're trying, and it's it's a challenge. As I said, um, th- this year they mostly are saying that they're not as well prepared as they have been in previous years because of all the strains on the system that have been uh, imposed by the, the pandemic. And so we're really kind of behind the eight ball right now, especially with this um, very pessimistic outlook on the hurricane season and the fact that we're expecting to see a lot more storms this year. Right. And it's more common to hear about Atlantic hurricanes hitting, say, Florida or North Carolina. But what's the risk for the New England coastline this year? Right. So if you have more storms than average, then that increases the likelihood of one of them making it all the way up to New England. It's just a numbers game, really. 
So before I let you go, I want to talk climate change for a minute, because you've said in a statement that the only way to keep dangerous storms from becoming more frequent is for the government and the private sector to take action and drastically cut carbon emissions. But in a media teleconference in late May, Jerry Bell, who's with NOAA, said that other climate signals like El Nino and La Nina are so dominant that there may not be any global warming signals to observe in the Atlantic yet. In fact, if you look back through the historical record back to the 1800s, you'll see that there's no real trend uh, in Atlantic hurricanes or really in the number of hurricane landfalls. So, Jennifer, what is your response to that? I couldn't disagree more. And I think that, um, you know, NOAA is walking a tight line here because, as you know, the current administration is not... um, doesn't believe in climate change, or at least states they don't believe in climate change. So I think NOAA is being very careful. Um, There is abundant evidence that climate change is affecting hurricanes in numerous ways. The ocean temperatures generally are increasing around the world, um, and especially we're seeing uh, increasing ocean temperatures off of our neck of the woods in New England. We've seen very warm waters up in Maine even. And that has no explanation other than climate change and the heat that's being trapped by the extra greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Those warmer ocean waters evaporate more water vapor into the atmosphere. And that is the fuel for storms, for hurricanes and for all sorts of storms. He is correct that there isn't an overall increase in frequency of hurricanes or landfalling hurricanes, but there is evidence that the strongest type of storms are increasing in frequency. Jennifer Francis is a senior scientist at Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking. You're very welcome. By the end of this century, sea level rise is projected to split the Rhode Island town of Warren into three pieces. Part of the town might even be on a new island. But a dynamic pair of town leaders is determined not to wait for a hurricane to force the town's hand. Instead, they're considering a controversial proposal, voluntary buyouts for at-risk property owners. Sophia Rudin for the Public's Radio has more. Tidal rivers and bays surround Warren. If a major storm were to hit today, the town projects almost half of the homes would be damaged. Town planner Bob Rooley. I mean, it's going to happen. There are homes that are going to be impacted. There's people that will be impacted. People like Stephen Pimentel. Whenever we get like a good rainstorm, any hurricane or anything, yeah, the, the street just backs up with water right there into the building. Stephen owns Warren Auto Body. It sits at a low point on Market Street, where the road crosses a small brook. He learned the business from his dad, Diogo, who began fixing cars in the Portuguese army, and bought this shop in the 80s. Yeah, it's pretty flooded over there at that corner. <laughs> it's actually pretty interesting to watch. I sometimes I'll just stand at the corner and be like, oh, don't do it, don't drive through it, and people tend to anyway, Town planner Bob Rooley and manager Kate Michaud got to thinking about that part of town, the problems people like Stephen already face, and the future that looms before them. And they got an idea, a bold, untested idea. You know, when we looked at the area where we, you know, we use as our poster child, the Market Street with 
dry cleaners, auto body, furniture stripping. It was a little bit of a hallelujah moment. Long term, Bob and Kate would like to redevelop an area of strip malls on safer, higher ground and use the increased tax revenue to buy out flood prone property owners in neighborhoods like Stevens. Here's Kate Michaud. I don't want something bad to happen in order for um, us to address the issue of, of flood vulnerability. But bold ideas are often only as good as the political buy-in they get. Bob and Kate took their idea to the town council. Medicom Avenue, in my estimation and opinion, is represents the absolute best of late 1950s, 1960s planning. <laughs> Bob warmed up a cautious crowd of council members and continued. So now is where you need to fasten your seatbelts and have some imagination. Right now we have 100,000 square feet of Job Lot Plaza, one story, all the way to the back. He explained how their plan would work. First, the town would redevelop Medicom Avenue. Right now, it's a busy four-lane road with a lot of 50s-style strip malls and none of the charm that marks Warren's other commercial streets. Bob and Kate showed the audience mock-ups of the Ocean State job lot parking lot, replaced by four-story buildings, with businesses on the street level and offices or apartments above. Part of a walkable neighborhood with bike paths and bus lanes. Bob asked them to imagine a redevelopment project that would bring in a lot of local tax money. On the job lot plaza alone... At present, we collect about $110,000 in tax revenue on an annual basis. If we were to build that out to a reasonable scale, we probably would be able to collect about seven hundred dollars to $800,000 on an annual basis. Bob and Kate propose putting some or all of that additional tax revenue aside in a special fund. That's called tax increment financing, and it's already allowed under state law. Here is where their idea enters uncharted waters. They would use the money to pay to move people and businesses out of the flood zone. But Bob eased into the plan gently talking about flooding risk and redevelopment without ever saying the word buyout. We have an opportunity to say, we can control our own destiny. We can implement our own zoning laws. So what I want to break is the paradigm that, okay, you know, we're just warned, and we'll wait for the state to tell us what to do. We know what to do. We have really qualified people here. We have all these people in this room. It went over well with the council and with the dozens of people who'd filled the hall. I am happy that this room is full. This is Councillor Joseph D. Pasquale. Uh, there once was a time where this many people would be here in opposition, so that's good that we're actually here. We haven't taken a vote yet. Well, but nobody's yelled or flipped out. So. In fact, all five council members expressed support for redeveloping Medicom Ave and seemed open to the idea of tax increment financing. The audience liked it, too. It's almost like, where do we go from here? And I'm excited because I know Bob and Kate, they get things done. Political momentum and public support will make or break Bob and Kate's rogue plan. The planning board president and council president both understand the full scope of the buyout idea, and they're behind it. Absolutely. This is town council president Carrie Cronin. I mean, it sounds it sounds like it's probably far off or it sounds like something that is, you know, so dramatic, but it's legitimately 
it's upon us that we have to consider those type of programs. The harder sell may be to the people and businesses in the flood zone. Stephen Pimentel is not thinking about leaving. He is saving up to make an offer to his landlord to buy the property. And there are parts of his business he wouldn't be able to move. You see this uh, frame rack over, over here? My father built that. It was all pieces of steel that he drilled holes, he welded, and, and fabricated that, you know. Uh, uh, something like that today, if you were to buy it, would probably cost you somewhere near like $80,000, you know. Yeah, he's a pretty talented dude, man. I don't respect the guy a lot. <laughs> Flooding has cost him before. Superstorm Sandy left a foot of standing water in the shop. But he says he doesn't want to move. I mean, I really can't worry about it. I just got to come in here every day and and do what I do. If it happens, it happens. So (laughs) as long as you have your insurance, you're good. Bob and Kate say they're trying to keep people in Warren by getting ahead of a potential hurricane that could wipe out this section of town. But Kate knows the conversations won't be easy. The, The fear of change is the fear of loss. I think if we sat back and took a reactive stance and just waited for something bad to happen, that there is a risk that the community could cease to exist, at least in the way that people know and love today. Um, But what we're talking about is this doesn't have to be a loss, that a change can happen without people losing what they love about the town of Warren. Warren is far from the only town wrestling with the questions of what to do with flood-prone properties. Barrington, East Providence, Cranston, and Westerly have all been talking about using property buyouts as a way to deal with climate change. Kate and Bob aren't waiting for the state or other towns to move first. They're setting the pace and daring other towns to keep up. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sophia Rudin. Coming up. We travel to Martha's Vineyard to see what's in store this summer with an ongoing pandemic. Plus, a program sends hair clippers to transgender people to help bring comfort during an uncomfortable time. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. All right, we're back. In towns throughout New England that rely on tourism, the coronavirus has upended summer traditions and raised questions and doubts about what the season will look like for visitors and residents. That's true for Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, where WCAI's Eve Zuckoff explores how people on the island are adjusting to the slowdown. In a minivan packed past the point of seeing out the rear window, Dottie and Bob Angler are waiting in Woods Hole. Soon they'll drive onto the ferry headed for Martha's Vineyard. We're hoping because it's full of fresh air and openness that it'll be a a great respite for us this summer. The couple from Newton, Massachusetts, drove through Friday traffic to open up their vineyard house for the season. But already, they're thinking about how different this summer will be. It's a little sad to think we won't say goodnight to the sun at Menemsha with everybody, because that's always such a treat. But, you know, you make do. I think it, it doesn't look like it's going to be a real open summer, though. The summer of 2020 is off to a slow start with just 65% the normal ferry traffic to the island on Memorial Day weekend. 
And the first to notice just how quiet it is are the year-round residents. The fireworks, the fireworks, the parades, the, the illumination. Everything is canceled. Everything. In Oak Bluffs, Tamara Robertson and Darcy Ednis are catching up over takeout breakfast. Ednis says she's used to the flood of visitors to the island this time of year. And on one hand, it's nice to think she could enjoy some calm this summer. I'm looking forward to it. But at the same time, I really feel bad for the business owners. I've never seen anything like this um, in the 30 years I've been here. That's Anthony Foster owner of Vineyard Caribbean Cuisine, a Jamaican takeout spot down the street. He says business for Memorial Day weekend was down about 70 percent. He'll need to nearly double his receipts going forward. At 50 percent, we probably could survive, but actually make money. You kind of need 100 percent of business that comes in here on the island. To help shopkeepers, the town is considering banning cars from the busy tourist streets, turning them into pedestrian-only walkways. Foster's business partner, Newton Wade, says they need the foot traffic. If somebody comes down the street and buy ice cream, they will see us and buy a jerk chicken. You know, the, 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 the day trippers, you know, we, we want to see that. Day trippers like Sue and Steve Carlson, who came up from Rhode Island. I didn't want to do yard work, so I wanted to do something other than yard work. Get out of the house. Get out of the house. So we said, let's take a ride over on the ferry just for something to do. But the day didn't exactly go as planned for Steve. We literally searched for two hours for a bathroom. There is not one public bathroom open anywhere. On Seriously, we had a cop help him find some place to use the bathroom because there's no open bathrooms on the island and it's Memorial Day weekend. Go figure. A few streets over, Craig Hall is raking in front of his colorful gingerbread cottage, taking in the newness and challenges of the summer. Well, it's a mess for sure. He splits his time between here and his home in Pittsburgh. He says he plans to go back and forth between the two, but doesn't recommend tourists do the same. You know, if people haven't been here before, I'd say stay away. Come back in a couple of years when things get back to normal. Until then, he's thinking about the youngest generation of his family. Well, our grandkids aren't coming. I mean, they'd be coming in a week or so, and... You know, there's nothing open for them to do. You know, the Flying Horses isn't open. Uh, The libraries aren't open. So all that, uh, you know, for little kids, it's, it's an issue. From shuttered carousels to canceled fairs and festivals, there's no question this summer will be different. But to Dottie Angler driving onto the ferry, that's not what matters. When you cross the planks onto the vineyard, a lot of weight gets lifted. And whatever's ahead of us... You know, we know that we'll have that great vineyard feeling again. That feeling? Summer. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. The drive-in movie is having its moment. With indoor theaters closed, outdoor theaters are selling tickets as fast as grocery stores are ringing up toilet paper. Alex Nunes from the Public's Radio spent a recent night at the drive-in with his family and shared his experience. We're watching a movie in our car. Is this exciting? My wife Stacy and I are at the Mesquamacate Drive-In Theater with our two sons, Julian's eight and Harrison's three. It's our first trip outside the house for something fun in months. The drive-in's running vintage ads before the movie starts. One invites us to the concession stand for tasty treats, like the most delicious steaming hot coffee you ever drank. (laughs) I doubt it. But the concessions here are actually closed for the time being. 
We've brought along our own popcorn and a big Tupperware container for everyone to share. Here, take your seasoning pack. Julian takes his popcorn spicier than his brother, so he's brought along a Ziploc baggie of Chipotle seasoning for sprinkling. Cars are parked side by side. Some are in reverse, and people have opened up their hatches to watch from the floor of their trunk. For a second, it looks like an average drive-in scene. Then a guy walks by wearing a cloth mask, and I remember we're in the middle of a pandemic. The movie tonight is Jaws, a summer classic that I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen. Maybe I just can't get the pandemic off my mind, but watching Jaws, I see some parallels. People scared of a mysterious and unpredictable threat, a mayor who's afraid his town will miss out on the tourist season, and a scientist who thinks no one has all the answers yet. Of course, the threat in Jaws is definitely different. It was a shark. Other than the parking lot attendants and the guy who pointed us to our spot, we don't interact with anyone else at the movie. But even if we're all closed off in the little worlds of our own vehicles, looking around, you get some sense of camaraderie, a feeling that we're all in this together. Harry doesn't notice, and he's not terribly impressed by Jaws. Classic or not, a film shot in the 1970s can't compete with the special effects he's used to. An hour into the movie, he's fast asleep. I make it to the scene where the police chief says, we're gonna need a bigger boat, and then I doze off too. My wife decides it's time for us to head home, back to the world of sheltering in place. Hi, thank you. A quick goodbye to the parking lot attendants, and we're on our way. But something doesn't feel quite right. Then it hits me. I still don't know the ending to the movie. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alex Nunes. Life during the pandemic means a ton of adjustments. There's an effort underway right now to get hair clippers to transgender people to help them maintain their gender identity at a time when clippers and access to professional haircuts are scarce. WBUR's Krista Laguerra reports on the Trans Clipper Project. So inside the bag, we have a larger clipper set, so the extra one inch. So they're getting the large clippers. And then we have the attachments. So That's Grace Walker, the Massachusetts coordinator for the Trans Clippers Project. This month, she delivered nearly 20 brand new hair clippers to trans folks in the community. Walker included information about food pantries and online support groups along with a handwritten note. So it's a little care package, and each one has their name that I um, ironed onto there. Because I want everyone to feel that they are cared for and that they're not alone. During one delivery, a person didn't want to show their hair because it made them so uncomfortable. Her third delivery that day takes her to Roslindale. The bag is marked Riley. It makes the recipient, a non-binary transgender person, emotional. I have my name on it. Like, my real name. And I changed my name, like, six, seven years ago now. But seeing a perfect stranger using that, no, they only know me that way. In an earlier conversation, Riley Copans admitted that they were willing to risk their life for a haircut. Time was passing by in quarantine, and their hair was growing long. They were starting to skip showers to avoid seeing their body. 
and found themselves getting increasingly depressed. So for a lot of trans folks, we experience dysphoria, which for folks who don't know is a word that means a strong, deep discomfort with either parts of our body and or parts of our appearance that align with the sex that we were assigned at birth. Copans connected with Walker through a grassroots effort out of New Orleans, founded by the organization Imagine Waterworks. Organizer and co-founder of the group, Clee Kleber, says not passing can put trans people in danger, and even a haircut can make them vulnerable to COVID-19. They can feel a little more comfortable in their bodies and maybe even continue to present um, closer to what feels good to them. Then they're also either less likely to be misgendered in the first place or can at least like have that solace that comes with you know, knowing that you feel good in your body, even if you're not necessarily being seen at that moment. In Copan's backyard, their neighbor Lauren Kiesling did the honors. Kiesling's only experience is shaving her own head, but she felt confident with clippers. They set up a chair under the afternoon sun, each donned face masks, and used extension cords to plug in the clippers. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. All right. If at any point, like, I get you or make you uncomfortable, let me know. Oh, good. I trust you. I'm just taking words that I've heard from my hairstylist. I'm like, yeah. is that what you're supposed to say? <laughs> it went by quicker than either expected, and Copan's relief was palpable. At a moment when Copan's looking for work and applying for food stamps, their hair is one thing they can control. This is exactly how it's supposed to be. This is how it's always supposed to be. A haircut brings comfort when everything else feels out of their hands. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cristela Guerra. And that's a wrap on Next this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. 